Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 11. This morning we'll cover the the whole 11th chapter, but for the sake of time I'd like to just read verses 4 through 9 to begin. So as you're finding your place there, if you could stand with me and we will read those verses and then pray for the Lord's help as we study the Word. Zechariah 11, verse 4. Thus said the Lord my God, Become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished, and those who sell them say, Bless the Lord, I've become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, But I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. Let's pray. Father, you have brought before us a a passage that is among the most dark in the prophets, among the most dark in all of the Bible. We, We believe by faith that you do this, that you have done it, because of your compassion for us. You you place warnings throughout your word that we might consider our own hearts to see whether or not we are in the faith. So we pray that this morning your word would have its way with us, that those who know the Lord Jesus would find him all the more pleasurable and delightful, and that those who do not know him would be moved by the scriptures to turn from their sin and trust in this glorious good shepherd. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Please be seated. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus called to himself the 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. He gave them authority, gave them power, and then he commanded them to do those things. He said later in in Matthew 10, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So we might find it a bit peculiar that elsewhere in that same gospel we find Jesus saying that many of the people who do those very things that he sent the disciples to do, many of those people will never see the kingdom. Matthew chapter 7 verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus presents that scenario not just as a possibility. He says there will be many in that camp. Not just Judas, not one, but there will be many of whom that is true. Lord, didn't didn't we go on mission trips and, and share the gospel with people of other cultures? Lord, haven't I given sacrificially to the church? I've I've tithed every payday my entire adult life. Didn't we share the gospel with our neighbors and with our coworkers? Didn't we have strong biblical theology? Lord, we've believed all the right things. Didn't we take these, these new believers and didn't we disciple them to maturity? And to many of those people, the Lord will say, who are you? This is is a terrible danger, a a terrible danger to mistake the mission to be the mechanism of our salvation, to confuse kingdom tasks with trusting Christ as Lord and loving him with all of our heart and soul, mind and strength. The road to hell, according to Jesus and Matthew 7, is paved with kingdom activities Terrifying. Zechariah 11 paints the same picture for us. This oracle came to Zechariah after the rebuilding of the temple. It's been completed. And so the people have done what Haggai and Zechariah exhorted them to do. They started the rebuilding of the temple. They persevered in spite of stiff opposition. And now they've completed the rebuilding of the temple But it appears that they have missed the whole point of having the temple. The temple was to serve as a meeting place with God that they might enjoy his presence. But the people mistook the rebuilding of the temple to be an end in itself. And they then continued in their ungodly living. It appears that after rebuilding the temple, the people, their leaders, they have functionally rejected God. They're not unique. Many professing Christians today have done the same thing. They do kingdom tasks and claim to know Jesus, but their trust is in those activities and not in the Lord. So the message for us this morning is you may have done, you may be doing kingdom work, but that is not salvation. What will you do with me, Jesus says? His patience. Though long, it will not wait forever. I'd like to uh, give a bit of an aside to, to a subsection of our congregation. Whenever we come to passages like this in the Bible that are warnings and they're a bit heavy, I, my, my heart goes out to those among us whom we might describe as morbidly introspective. Those who, who are frequently consumed with the question, am, am I really saved? And then when they hear messages like this one, they they dive even further into themselves, weighing every last thought and motive and emotion. Listen to to those of you among us who who may be morbidly introspective. I would like to give you 
permission to sleep tonight. It's okay. And I'm going to give you the point of this message for you. And it is this. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Don't even ask the question, am I trusting in Jesus? Or have I trusted in Jesus? No, the application for you is trust Jesus. This this message is actually for those who tend not to think about these things at all. They, They are doing the work of the Lord, and so they think they belong to the Lord. And that may not be the case. Teenagers, if there are teenagers among us, and there are, I am particularly burdened for you this morning, and I would exhort you to listen closely to this message. I'll be saying something specifically to you toward the end, and it will be most helpful to you if you have stayed with me throughout our time together this morning. Zechariah gives us four steps as he, as he accomplishes this message. And the first step is, is in your notes. It's this. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Let's read verses 1 through 3. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. These these three opening verses are a poetic preview of the judgment that is predicted at the end of this passage. So this chapter begins and ends with destruction, which indicates to us that that is a main thrust of the chapter. This chapter is a warning, and it is intended to to impart to us an urgency to heed the warning. It's not too late. Heed the warning. In A.D. 66 to 70, that is just about 40 years after the resurrection and ascension of of Jesus, history recorded the fulfillment of of these three verses. You can read about it in Josephus' The Jewish War. For, For a long time prior to A.D. 70, that region had been in utter turmoil. Small Jewish rebellions would pop up here and there against the Romans. And eventually, some of these Jewish revolutionaries gained control of Jerusalem itself, and they slaughtered the entire Roman garrison that was stationed there. And so in 66, the Roman emperor Nero had had enough, and he sent the general Vespasian to take care of that situation. And so Vespasian came to this area of the world, and he began to to pick off the cities of Galilee first on his way to Jerusalem. Vespasian himself became the emperor in A.D. 68, and so he left his second-in-command, Titus, to finish up the war. Now, when, when Rome finally laid siege to Jerusalem itself, they cut off all supplies to the city, and unfortunately, Jewish leadership at the time was characterized by the infighting of three factions. There were three factions within Jewish leadership. For that reason, Negotiations with Titus were almost impossible, and so food did not come into the city. People began to starve to death. Now, if you're 
if you're taking notes, you might write down Deuteronomy 28. That would be worth your time to read this afternoon or this week. Deuteronomy 28 records the nightmare that would be A.D. 70. It predicts that the most refined among the women of the city would be so hungry they would eat their own children and they would not share that human flesh with their husbands. Josephus records that very thing taking place in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The Romans eventually, they broke the walls of the city. The survivors were forced to take refuge in the temple. On July 17th, A.D. 70, the the sacrifices were halted because there was no one left to offer them. Finally, the gates of the temple were burned and the temple itself was destroyed. Just as Jesus predicted in Matthew 24, not a single stone was left on top of another. The Romans gathered up the survivors and crucified thousands That is the judgment foretold in this passage. Commentators find in verse 1 a reference to the destruction of the temple. The doors of the temple were made of Lebanon cedars. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. The, the, The cypress and the oaks, they wail when they see these glorious trees have fallen. The shepherds, the leaders... They also wail over the ruin of their glory. So at the outset of this chapter, using poetic language, the prophet calls us to consider the reality of judgment. It is coming just as surely as the events of A.D. 66 through 70 came upon Jerusalem and the temple. So also the final judgment is marching toward us as we speak. It will arrive. And the implied question to us is, how will we be safe? Now Zechariah, beginning in verse 4, he's going to back up and take a, a running start at this warning again showing why judgment is coming. Which leads us to the second step in his message. First of all, judgment is coming. Second, God has given a good shepherd. He's given a good shepherd. Verse 4. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished, and those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I've become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. The slaughtering and and buying and selling that he refers to here is talking about the buying and selling of the Jews as slaves, buying and selling their brothers and sisters as slaves. You can read about this in Nehemiah 5. It was happening after the temple was rebuilt. They went back to their former ways. See, they've they've rebuilt the temple so that Yahweh can live among them and they're, they're offering sacrifices. They're doing the mechanical things of piety, but they're oppressing each other, just like they were before the exile. Which, which shows that they've not changed. Their hearts are still far from God. And now in response, God mercifully sends a good shepherd. The Lord commands Zechariah to act out the coming of Jesus Christ. And he does this by serving as a shepherd among the people. If you jump down to verse 7, you'll see that Zechariah actually does this. Verse 7, so I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds. 
Zechariah actually did the work of a shepherd, carried these two staves, which he called favor and union. What those two staves mean, we'll, we'll discuss later. But he, he, he actually got rid of three selfish shepherds among the people. All, all of this is acting out God's plan to replace Israel's former evil shepherds with a good shepherd to, de- to deliver them. The people of Israel, they'd, they'd had terrible leadership for centuries, terrible shepherds. The people themselves were not following after God. And so to the generation of the first century, God sent a final merciful gift in the form of the good shepherd, Jesus. In his, in his earthly ministry, we see him contending with the evil shepherds of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. There, there really is no better way to describe those, those religious sects than what Zechariah writes in verse 5. He could have been thinking specifically of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians. And so our minds then might be called to Jesus cleansing the temple where he he goes to his father's house and he sees these evil shepherds making a profit of the worship of, of his father. Or we might think of Jesus preaching against the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23 saying of them, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Later in Matthew 23, Jesus says this directly to the Pharisees, you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Jesus contended with these evil shepherds and he not only did that, but he, he also did what no shepherd could do. That is that he suffered for the sins of his people on the cross. He, he died on their behalf so that having taken their sin upon himself, removed their sin from them, they might be reconciled to God. He died there on the cross and three days later, the father raised him from the dead, proclaiming that Christ's vicarious suffering was sufficient to provide for their forgiveness. In other words, Jesus was was not the kind of shepherd that, that, that Israel had always had, shepherds who think only of themselves and who lead the people away from God, but Jesus was a shepherd who, who, who shepherded lost sheep to the Father. And the Scriptures would have us to understand that we have all followed after our own way. We, we're all like lost sheep. But the Father sent Jesus as the good shepherd to save us from the peril of our sin and to shepherd us to his fold. The most important decision that any of us will ever make is whether or not we will follow this good shepherd. Some some people assume that they are Christians because they've gone to church all their lives. Or they, they, they pray over every meal. Or they've, they've done more good things than bad things. Or they know and agree with the gospel. But none of these things will make us right with God. If we bring these things with us as our defense on Judgment Day, they will not defend us, but they will accuse us. They will not serve as life preservers, but they'll be like a millstone about our necks. Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and, and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Love, love those words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus saying to those around him, saying to us, you, you Struggle under a burden of sin and you're, you're working, working, working to make yourself right with God, but you can't do it. Let me give you rest. Trust in me. Let me take that burden from you. Die for it. I remove sin. I give an easy yoke. Come to me. Let me give you rest for your soul. Many, many in the modern professing church have learned all the right things about Jesus. And they've claimed to know him while functionally walking right past Jesus, carrying their burden, continuing to labor for their own redemption. Not trusting that he alone can take that burden. Not believing that they themselves are incapable of earning God's favor. Not, not declaring in their hearts, the blood of Jesus speaks for me before the righteous judge. His righteousness alone acquits me. They've not done that. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Have, have you turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus alone to save you from the wrath to come? Judgment is coming. And the only way to escape it is to trust this good shepherd that God has given. Judgment is coming. God has given a good shepherd. The third step follows very naturally from the second, and it is this. God's patience will not wait forever. His patience will not wait forever. Verse 6. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land. And I will deliver none from their hand. So Zechariah's act, what we would call a sign act that he is performing in front of, of the people, demonstrates the message of verse 6. God's patience has run out. He will no longer have pity on the people. We've already seen in verse 7 how Zechariah acted out God's gracious provision of a godly shepherd. But look at how they responded in verse 8. But I became impatient with them and they also detested me. Just as with God in the past, Zechariah's patience became short. And just as with God in the past, they rejected Zechariah as shepherd. Verse 9. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What's to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. The, the people's rejection of Zechariah, it, it depicts their rejection of God. And Zechariah's abandonment of them depicts God's de abandonment of them. His patience will not wait forever. Zechariah removed his care here, showing acting out that God is going to remove his care from those who reject the good shepherd. Verse 10, And I took my staff of favor and broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. All the peoples is a reference to these Gentile nations around Judah and Israel. 
So he's, he is saying that God will cease to restrain these nations. In other words, he's removing his protection from the people. Verse 11. So it was an old on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Now, if you look at the, those words, sheep traders, some of you who are reading other translations than the ESV, you may have something a bit different. And I, I would say that the sheep traders is not the best translation of the Hebrew text. These are likely the afflicted of the sheep. That is, they are the most vulnerable of the flock. And this leads most commentators to understand this to be a reference to the remnant of God. They are those among the people who are actually the Lord's. And so they, the remnant, they see this impending doom and understand that it's the hand of God, that it is deserved by the people. So they themselves, they're regenerate and redeemed, but they understand what is coming upon those around them has been earned. Verse 12. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. So Zechariah says to the people, if if you're going to pay me, pay me. If not, whatever. So they give him 30 pieces of silver. And, you know, we don't know biblical money that well. So we might think, well, that sounds decent. But Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Exodus 21.32. Exodus 21.32 marks out 30 pieces of silver as the price of a slave. And so when Zechariah says, the lordly price at which I was priced by them, he is using biting sarcasm. They have they have treated him like a slave. And so the Lord says, throw that money to the potter. Throw it away. Verse 14. Then I broke my staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Judah and Israel being the two houses of God split many hundreds of years earlier. Now that they've rejected God, there's going to be a disunity and a rending of the kingdom similar to earlier in their history. So Zechariah, he's acted all of this out. And in doing so, he has forecasted more of the events of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and its aftermath. God sent Jesus. We've we've already seen this. God sent Jesus. The people, though, rejected him. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, 33. Matthew 21, 33. John 1, 11 reads, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. In Matthew 21, beginning in verse 33, Jesus tells a parable to that effect. Matthew 21, 33. The Lord Jesus said, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, 
he sent his son to them, saying, They'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus came as a good shepherd, gave all of himself to ransom them and to bring them back to the Father. How did they repay him? Of course, we know the gospel story even after the warnings, the many warnings of the prophets, even after this parable, which is a warning, they paid 30 pieces of silver that they might get their hands on him and kill him. Turn over to Matthew 27 now, just a few pages. Matthew 27, 3 records the fulfillment of part of Zechariah 11. Matthew 27, 3, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, first of all, don't be troubled by the fact that Matthew attributes this prophecy to Jeremiah and not Zechariah. Lord willing, I'll address that on the blog this week. Just understand that as the, as the New Testament authors read the prophets, and in particular, Zechariah 11, they saw this as a fulfillment of that prophecy. Just as Zechariah broke those two staffs, union and favor, so the rejection of Jesus resulted in the removal of God's protection from the people and the disunity and division of the people, all of which was fulfilled in A.D. 66 to 70. The, the, the whole history of Israel shows God's tremendous patience. He gives them chance after chance and warning after warning, grace upon grace, and the people just take advantage of it all. So many chances, so many prophets sent to them to call them to God, but they obstinately clung to their lineage and their work. We are of the line of Abraham, and we built the temple, and we offer sacrifices. We do this, we do that, we're good. But what did they do with the good shepherd? That is the question. They rejected him. 
and his patience did not last forever. You, you and I, we should not live as if we have forever to follow Jesus. The clock is ticking. And you and I each only have a certain amount of time. If Christ doesn't come back first, we will all eventually die. And when we do, it will be too late. Which leads to the final step in Zechariah's message. All who reject Christ are doomed. All who reject Christ are doomed. Verse seven, verse 15. Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I'm raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye, let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. So what's happening now is that Zechariah is changing roles. Now he's going to play the role of a worthless shepherd. That is, ungodly leadership a judgment upon the people for rejecting the good shepherd. This depicts the second part of verse 6. Zechariah eleven six. Look at the second part. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. And this is exactly what happened as a result of the people rejecting Jesus. They exchanged the good shepherd for evil shepherds and godless kings. If you're taking notes, write this down. John 19, 14, and 15. John 19, verses 14 and 15. There we read this. He, Pilate, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your kings. Talking about Jesus. Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. The people rejected Jesus and they were left with those evil shepherds and godless kings. From that point on, those evil shepherds continued to not care for the people and those godless kings destroyed their place in their nation. The worthless shepherd, singular, of verse 17 is emblematic of all the Jewish leadership after the Incarnation. But as verse 17 teaches, they too were judged in the aftermath. And we may read these things, hear these things, and think, fools, fools, they saw Jesus. They heard His voice. They didn't heed his word and follow him. What fools. Listen, family, let's not deceive ourselves. All of Christ's words are true. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will then declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. If you go to this church, you might may find comfort in a number of things about this church. 
you, you hear the gospel every single week. You sing the gospel every week. Every song that we've sung this morning has the good news of Jesus Christ in it. This good news of a God who, in spite of the great offense of the sins of men, sent his own son to live for them and to die for their sins that they might be reconciled to him by faith. You hear that all the time. You even sing it with your own mouths and you hear people talking about it in the halls, in the foyer, and in this room. But have you heeded the gospel? Listen to me, teenagers, young people. There was a a study published by Lifeway Research this year, 2019, which said that two out of every three student will fall away after they leave high school. Now, the teens at our church, maybe that ratio is higher, maybe it's lower. But if the trend holds here, two out of every three of our teens will walk away from the faith when their parents are not there to make them go. And what that tells me is that it is possible that among our teens, perhaps even among, among, among the rest of us, that we are here simply because someone else is here. And what we are thinking of as our faith may actually be the crutch of the faith of someone else. Have you heeded the gospel? You. Not your parents and not your spouse, but have, have you heeded the gospel? I'm, I'm not asking, do you know the gospel? Of course you do. You, you, you attend this church. You know the gospel. I'm not even asking if you agree with it. Have you heeded it? Have you turned from your sin, understanding that, that it is carrying you to a just and eternal doom? Have you abandoned the the wagon of self-righteousness by which so many labor to earn God's favor and thereby, ironically, further condemn themselves? All that is to say, have have you repented? Have you repented? And have you thrust yourself at the feet of this good shepherd king and said, please, please, plead for me on the last day. Cover me with your righteousness. Please wash my sin clean by your holy blood. In my sin, I'm doomed. I'm undone. And if you don't plead for me, I will perish. I have no hope but you. Please let me follow you with everything that I am. In other words, have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you done that? I I beg you. Do not bring with you on the last day a truckload of kingdom works as currency to buy the real estate of heaven because I guarantee this is what you will hear. Who are you? I don't know you. Depart. You worker of lawlessness. Those who trust in Christ, those who trust in Christ, they come to judgment day empty-handed. 
Jesus' blood and righteousness is my plea on this day. Now, this journey that we've made through Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi eventually, this is a series that is intended by the Holy Spirit to make us zealous for kingdom works, right? We have this glorious mission that we've been given by the Lord Jesus And in this mission, we proclaim the gospel, the good news to the lost that they might be saved. We minister the gospel to the saved that they might be grown up in Christ. This is glorious work. And these three prophets that we're studying, they're pushing us toward this. But in the midst of all this exhortation to do kingdom work, the Holy Spirit repetitively puts, He sprinkles throughout these these prophets, warnings to us, calling us to remember The work that we are doing does not earn us a place. Don't mistake the mission for the mechanism of your salvation. We do the work because we have followed Christ. We do not appeal to that work as our plea before the judge. We trust in what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And because of what he did 2,000 years ago, that is why we, we gladly and happily do the work that we've been called to do. Now, some of, us, some of us may find messages like this one somewhat harsh. Again, this, this is one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. But I, I would suggest to you that it is out of great compassion that God has given this oracle to Zechariah. It was with great compassion that Christ said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. It's compassionate for God to prompt us to examine ourselves while it's still called today. While there's still time. And so if, if you find yourself this morning thinking, I haven't trusted in Christ or, or trusted in Him, then, then you must you must repent and trust in Jesus today. Perhaps you've got questions about these things. I, w- I would beg of you to talk to someone before you leave this building today. Talk to one of the elders. We're all available after the service. Talk to someone sitting around you. This room is filled with people who can answer your questions, but don't leave with those questions unanswered. And if you have trusted in Jesus if, if, if you if you found as you, as you hear this, yes, praise the Lord, He has done all the work, and I, I trust in Him, then praise Him that by His grace and prompting, you have already heeded the gospel, and now you are free to do the work of the kingdom with great joy and hope. And listen, brothers and sisters, because of this message, trust Him all the more. Trust Him all the more. Because only Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. I'm going to pray, and uh, and after I do, we'll enjoy a moment of silence to consider what the Lord would have us to do in response to these things, and then we'll sing a final song. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the totality of Your Word. and We believe what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3. That all Scripture, every jot and tittle, is inspired by Your Holy Spirit and is profitable to us 
We have seen how this chapter is profitable to us. It gives us occasion to consider our own souls, our own walk with the Lord. I pray, Lord, that among those who have have been led by the Spirit to see that perhaps they, they do not know Jesus, that today you would burden them to the point that they would not be able to leave this place without dealing with the truth. You would graciously move them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone that they might be saved. The rest of us, Father, who, who, who know the Lord Jesus, we praise You. We praise You for the Gospel. We praise You that Jesus did it all. And we ask, Father, that as we leave this place, You, you would cause us to worship. Just worship Jesus. And to trust Him all the more. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus.